listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The sun coming in the window is very bright, so it's hard to tell how many people are here. I, I'm actually uh, uh, pleasantly surprised that, uh, that the Winnipeg Jets didn't entirely decimate us this evening. We were talking about this before, when the musicians, before the musicians were warming up, and uh, Mike McTavish, who's on sound, said, you know, I grew up a Baptist. Like, I, I, I would never be able to miss church for a hockey game. And then he said, because I would be afraid if I did, my team would lose. <laughs> and on that note, may only truth be spoken and only truth received. While the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. While the disciples were talking about these things, and what they were talking about was a story that had just been brought back to them by two people who'd been on the road to Emmaus, and who claimed that they had actually met the risen Lord on that road, that they recognized him when they sat down together for a meal and he broke bread with them. What? Like, how is this possible? He's dead. He's been buried in a tomb. You're seeing things. It's all in your imaginations. It's all wishful thinking, isn't it? And then, no sooner is their story told and they're talking about it that He's there with them in their midst. Peace be with you, he says to them. But they're terrified. They're afraid they're seeing a ghost. Of course, the disciples have been frightened since the night of his arrest. There was that moment when the mob first arrived at Gethsemane, and Peter had pulled out a sword he had hidden in his cloak. But as soon as Jesus told him to lay that sword down, the panic had set in. And they'd run, they hid, they stayed away during that whole dreadful crucifixion day. And two days later, they're still in hiding, fearful that the authorities will do to them what they had done to Jesus. And now this, this experience, and they're terrified again. There's just no framework to hold this. It's a ghost, it must be, what else could it be? He's dead, we know it. And so Jesus said to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, and certainly not scars. Their heads must have been swimming at that point, right? I mean, how does this fit with anything they know about the way that the world, life itself, actually works? And so Luke says that in their joy, their joy, which means that some of the pieces were beginning to fall into place for them, in their joy they were still disbelieving and still wondering. And evidently Jesus can see this pretty clearly. And so he asks them, is there anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now, on the one hand, 
This act of eating a piece of fish might be read as little more than a good, solid demonstration that he's not a ghost. He's embodied. He can eat. He carries the nail scars on his hands and feet. He's also, though, not simply a resuscitated corpse, because things like locked doors don't keep him out. He's resurrected, which means that he is more alive than any human person has ever before been. So alive, in fact, that the world can barely contain him, which is part of what the story of the Ascension told a little further into the season, part of what that story is about. So nibbling on a bit of fish demonstrates that he's not a ghost, but I think it points yet again to how incredibly important food and drink are in the Jesus movement. How many times in the Gospels is Jesus pictured at a meal? It might be with Simon the Pharisee, or Zacchaeus the tax collector. It could be in the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, or in the upper room on the night of his arrest, or out on a hillside with the multitudes who are offered what to eat? Bread and fish. And this isn't the only resurrection story that involves food. In that Emmaus story that comes right before this one. It's when he breaks the bread, blesses, breaks, and gives it to them that they can suddenly see who they're dealing with. And then in the final chapter of the Gospel according to John, there's this lovely resurrection story in which Jesus grills a little breakfast of fish and bread for the disciples on the beach. I think that part of what the movement learns from Jesus is that food, the partaking of it and the sharing of it, is actually quite deeply transformational for community. Any wonder that the principal act he gave to them and to us is a symbolic meal of bread and wine? And so they watch Jesus as he takes this piece of fish And he eats it. And their fear dissolves. And now they can listen as he talks with them and helps them to make sense of all that has happened. Now move to the brief reading we heard from the book of Acts. As I said last week, the lectionary will have us reading from the book of Acts right through most of the season of Eastertide. And it invites us to catch a glimpse of what the church looks like when it's freed from fear and can stand as a resurrection people infused by the living Spirit of God. As our text begins tonight, it's right after a healing story. And Peter and John have gone up to the temple to pray which among other things means that they've got absolutely no sense that they are to leave behind the deep tradition of the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms. No, no. And so they go to the temple to pray in their tradition. And when they arrive, they encounter a man who is lame and who day by day goes to the temple to beg for alms. I have no silver or gold, Peter says to the man, 
But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And what do you know? Right away that man is up on his feet dancing for the first time in his life. Well, that draws a bit of a crowd. And they're all looking to find out how in heaven's name this has happened to that character who sits there every day, who's so familiar. And so they turn and Peter begins to teach. And he's really clear that he and John actually didn't heal the man, not them, but that it was by calling on the strong name of Jesus that the man has been enabled to walk. The one that was killed on the cross was not defeated by it, they say. But rather, he has defeated death itself and made open to all a path of life and wholeness. Of course, a lame man will dance. So now, my friends, he says, you repent, turn around, turn to that God so that your sins may be wiped out. That's where our portion of the reading ended. But had we kept going, we would have discovered that the temple authorities are not particularly pleased about this talk of Jesus of Nazareth being the one responsible for this healing. Calling on the name of Jesus was not on, thank you very much. And so Peter and John are actually arrested. The authorities zero in on this question of their authority. They ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? They don't dispute that something amazing has happened. But what, by what power, by what name do you do this? To which Peter boldly replies that it is in the name of Jesus that they are acting. There is salvation in no one else, he says. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we might be saved. Now the whole situation creates a bit of a conundrum for those temple leaders. Because after all, how can you condemn somebody for apparently healing a lame man? And how can you do it particularly when this healing has been witnessed and presumably rather celebrated by so many people in the public square? And so they decide they can just let Peter and John go. That would be an easier path. Let them go, but they add a condition to their release. They say, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, not only do the two of them entirely ignore this condition, but Peter pretty much tells the council that it will be impossible for them to obey that condition. They, they are bound to, di- to disobey, in fact. Sure enough, just one chapter further into Acts, and they are in prison yet again for doing the same thing yet again. Interesting thing is, of course, that the frightened disciples of the latter part of the Gospels, who are terrified from Gethsemane right through to this resurrection appearance when they actually see their teacher eating the food they offer him, those frightened disciples have now become bold almost beyond measure. And how is this? How is that possible? Well, as it says in the first epistle of John, perfect love casts out fear. 
perfect love, which is the love they have received in and through Jesus. And it means that they just aren't fearful anymore. It is perhaps the most powerful attestation to the resurrection, this transformation in those people. From disciples who hid in fear to apostles who will speak and act very publicly, fearlessly, even if it means that those authorities might well do to them the very thing they had done to Jesus. Truthfully, though, there are really scary things that can mark our lives. Really scary things, whether it's an illness or an accident or some circumstance outside of our control, terrify us. In his lovely little book, Telling Secrets, Frederick Beekner writes of how his adult daughter's desperate struggle with anorexia nervosa had bound him up entirely in fear as her father. And thinking about this, Beekner writes about a, a piece of stained glass that sits on the window ledge in his study. And that piece of stained glass pictures the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz, a story Beekner quite loves. And in that stained glass, the cowardly lion's paws are bound tight in ropes. There's tears streaming down his face. And the flying monkeys around are mocking and tormenting him. Bigner writes of how he began to identify with that image of the cowardly lion. So bound up was he in fear that his daughter's increasingly desperate eating disorder would kill her and that he'd be responsible because he was unable to stop it. It was only when Beekner learned that he couldn't save her, he couldn't fix her, he couldn't stop her, only when he admitted that was out of his control that the ropes began to loosen. Only when he understood that his terrible fear might actually be a a part of the whole pathology of her disease, that he had to release her to grace and learn to love her in an uncontrolling and unfearful way in the very midst of her illness. Only then did the ropes of fear fall to the ground. Perfect love casts out fear, but because we don't always have a clue as to how to love perfectly, we can so easily lose heart and find that our paws are bound. What these scriptures tell us tonight, one after another, is that those ropes really are ultimately an illusion, but illusions can be scary. That in the end, as a resurrection people, We will have no reason to be afraid, even if there are days it's hard to hold on to that hope. And even when we are afraid, we must remember that our lives and even our deaths are being held safe in the death and the life of Jesus. That's Easter.
Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.